Well, with bent knee, I encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we read, glory be to God, a lot of verses. Beginning in verse 9, chapter 19, down to verse 26 of chapter 20. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent his message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king back? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you're not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong in the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I had to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king, but my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were men, but uh, men doomed to death before my lord, the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my lord, the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come from Rohelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, and for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant take what he eats or what he drinks? Excuse me, taste? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here's your servant, Jimim. Let him go over my, with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. The king answered, Jimim shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. 
Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his home. And the king went on to Gilgal, and Shimon with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in the David. We have no portion in the son of Jesse. Every man to his own tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, death living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they are at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came nearer, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to the, all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and there dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. 
and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. The encouragement's real. You can, uh, you can be seated. Thank you. Whew. What a passage, huh? But it's good to stand for God's word. Sometimes it's just good to hear a lot of God's word. Like, I, I wonder, honestly, just for a second, I, I wonder if what I just did right now was more than someone has heard the word all week. And that was nine minutes, and we're like... I'm glad to be sitting down. But isn't it just good that when you come to church, you're going to get the word for nine solid minutes to the glory of God and the good of your souls. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Well, hey, uh, church, it's good to be with you. And if you're on live stream, we're glad to have you joining us as well. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 19 and 20, coming to the end of this kind of chaotic section of scripture. And uh, while you're turning to 2 Samuel 19, I just want to say my name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. And I just want to thank you for being a generous church, a mission-minded church. I had the privilege last week of speaking at City Bible Church in Sacramento. And uh, it's just a reminder that God's doing good work in this city. And uh, that's an awesome church. Actually, uh, I passed, uh, the first place I ever lived as a kid was in the Fab 40s. And uh, early, early on as a baby, but passed those streets and, and kind of got to take a walk down memory lane, drive right past there to preach. Uh, how many were here for the book of Habakkuk? Sweet, like nobody. Yeah, our church is like 80% new from that time. And, uh, but man, go back. That was such an impactful series for the three that were here, uh, at least for me and my soul. And uh, there was just a message at the end that has always gripped my heart. And I got to preach that message. And it was just a sweet, sweet time. So if you think about it, be praying for City Bible. And uh, thank you for letting our church just go and serve other churches. And I know you were well served last week, weren't you? And that's high school ministry, y'all. That's awesome. That's straight up awesome what they're doing. Praise God for Pastor Zach and Pastor Michael. Okay. Clearly, after 10 minutes of reading, I don't have a lot of time left. We know I'm long-winded to begin with. So, title of the message this morning, what is it? Still standing. Still standing. Okay. So, if you got in my head, when I come to that title, then you would naturally know the first thing I'm thinking is Rocky. Okay? That's, you don't want to be in my head, but if you were there, that's where we would go. Okay? So, the title becomes clear, and then Rocky comes to mind. No one else big part of my childhood. And there was such a theme there because, and there's this one scene, I think it's in Rocky too. shame on me for not knowing. And there's this conversation with the commentators and they're saying, what's keeping this guy up, Bill? Do you remember that scene? And he's just been pummeled left and right. You know, there's no reason he should be standing. And yet, what was his goal in that first fight? Gonna make it to the end of the 15th round, Right? beaten and bloodied but still standing and that was going to show him for the very first time that he's not just another bum from the neighborhood right sweet okay it sounds like just me and myself and I are Rocky fans in the past and I couldn't help but think how much that ties into exactly where we are as this section of scripture comes to the end. We're kind of in the 15th round, right? What do I mean by that? We're in the 15th round of the initial aftermath of David's sin, right? Chapters 13 to 20. We've been pounding that drum from the beginning. Everything we're seeing in the sword that has clearly been devouring the kingdom and the house of David is now kind of coming to a close. And here's the good news. The kingdom is still standing. Now, the big idea to drive this point home is this, that the kingdom is still standing in spite of the consequences of the returning king's sin reminds us of a really, really important thing to know and to remember, and that is that the kingdom is the Lord's. The only explanation that the kingdom is still standing is that the kingdom is still the Lord's. And that carries on to today. Listen, 
if the kingdom wasn't the Lord's, it would have imploded far before the son of David had ever taken on flesh to die for sinners in their stead. The same truth carries on today for the church, that the church is still standing in spite of the consequences of our sin and the sins of others reminds us that the church is the Lord's. It reminds us that Jesus Christ has made a promise and he will fulfill that promise. That brings massive encouragement to me. I'll tell you why that brings encouragement to me this week. You want to know? Because uh, every other year, Lifeway and Ligonier um, get together and do a put out a state of theology that lets us know where evangelicals stand on some major doctrinal issues. And so if you are aware of that at all, how many are aware of that? Who am I talking to right now? Okay, so not a ton, but enough. You always go into it as a pastor going, okay, just be prepared for your heart to sink. Just be prepared for your heart to sink, right? A couple just stand out things to me. And there's some areas of encouragement, praise God, to God. There are also several more areas of discouragement, such as 71% of evangelicals don't believe in original sin. 71% of evangelicals believe everyone is born innocent. 71%, three in four. If you believe that, your gospel is going to be awfully weak because what is the good news when you can save yourself? And then maybe for the fact that we just stood for 10 minutes and read the Bible, one that's concerning to me is 53% of evangelicals agree that the Bible is not literally true. Now, when you throw the term evangelical out there and you let somebody define it, you can get all kinds of weird definitions you can imagine, right? But this is ligonier and lifeway. Like I imagine the bar to be a bit higher and that is concerning and yet... Despite the shakiness, the church will continue to stand because Jesus Christ will build his church. And it, and it may stand. It may be hinged on like a thread, but if it's a thread of God's promise, that thread is going to hold church. You believe that today, okay? When he promises, he fulfills. Even if it's a remnant that holds in the end, he'll hold it. Even if you go to church after church after church and the gospel's not even shared, God will preserve his church somewhere in some place, maybe not even in a building, but he will do it because he will bring the work he's promised to completion. This is the encouragement we have today. And as we go back to 2 Samuel, the encouragement we have that the kingdom still stands rests on a promise indeed. And that promise was to David in 2 Samuel 7. And we still hold fast to that through the finished work of Jesus, who is the son of David, that promise still stands. And so we jump into the text today to see this. And chapters 19 and 20 describe David's return to the throne. And what does he return to but two major areas of problem, some that is created and some that he just runs into. And that is division and rebellion. That the returning king returns to his kingdom amidst division and amidst rebellion. Sound like something possibly that a future returning king could return to? Mm -hmm. I think so. So we're going to break it down like that. It's going to be super easy to follow because it's going to go chapter by chapter. And so the first one is this. The kingdom is still standing, praise God, amidst division. The kingdom is still standing amidst division. The text starts in verse 9. It really goes down to verse 15 with this question that's being asked amongst the tribes. In other words, who should bring David back to, his, to the land, right? And they're conflicted. Israel's in a big, bit of a pickle because they've seen David been so faithful He's saved them, verse 9. He's delivered them, verse 9. But he fled because Absalom came in, and then they switched allegiances, and they followed Absalom. But now Absalom is dead, which means David's remaining, and why hasn't anyone brought him back yet? It's basically what's going on. And then David, it's a little bit awkward, right? Because David's the king coming back, and, and he's almost like having to like, get on the phone and be like, hey, it's my birthday. How come no one's you know, having a party for me? 
kind of thing. Like, hey, I'm returning. How come no one's in charge of my homecoming? And so what does he do? He goes to his family tribe. He goes to Judah and goes, hey, you should have been leading in this. I come back. You should have been there. You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? This is us. We should have been doing this together. Now, they're a little bit hesitant, right? Because a whole bunch of stuff had gone down in Judah. That wasn't good and wasn't favorable towards David. So the whole scenario is this, wait a minute. I'm not sure if going out to see King David, that he doesn't have an agenda to put some justice to our names ASAP. So what does he do? Well, to show that he's not after retribution at this moment, and instead he's coming to bring a message of good news and of peace, he switches Joab for Amasa as head of the army. Amasa was the head of which army before? Absalom's, right? So this was a sign for them to understand that David wasn't coming for retribution, and they are sold enough that it says in verse 14, he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So you remember how the hearts of the men were swayed towards who at the beginning? Absalom. And now they're swayed back to David in the house of Judah. And this affects Israel. They get kind of sensitive. But we don't hear about that till the very end of chapter 19. In fact, the division that's caused between David's seeming favoritism of Judah and Israel kind of pauses and waits till the end of the chapter. So you have this bookend of this issue going on between Israel and Judah. And in the middle of this, we meet a series of characters. Just as like we met a series of characters when David went out in exile, so as he returns, we meet a series of characters. And here's what I'm calling it as we work through these, because they're going to be applicable to us. I'm calling them responses to the returning king. All right, And they may represent a response you may have to the returning king. Responses that are encouraging and would give you hope that when you see the returning king, it would go well for you and maybe some responses not so much. And so there's three of them. You'll see the first one in verses 16 to 23. We got our main man, Shimei, back in the house. Anyone miss him? That cursed, trash-talking, rock-throwing, dust-scattering man just far enough away so he doesn't get beat up, right? The classic little brother trash talker on the other side. Yeah, whatever, man. And uh, he comes back barreling down to the Jordan with a thousand men around him, right? This is what's going down. He's barreling down to the Jordan. He is, he's bragging about the fact that he's there first. Doesn't he brag about it? Yeah, I was there first. I want you to remember that, Lord, as you consider this, or king. And so he comes down and he basically starts confessing, doesn't he? And he confesses in a, no way, don't, don't let this go to heart. What I've done to you, king, he even uses David's language. Did you notice that? When he uses the word, just the simplicity of I have sinned. Okay, um, that type of confession, winning, right? When it's genuine. Like a, a plain, straight from the heart. Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner is winning with the Lord. That's how you start in relationship with God. The question we got to figure out, though, is that is this legit now? Or is it more like I got caught and now I got to say sorry? So we figure it out. And Abishai's, of course, seeing this whole thing take place. And Abishai, you remember, he was the guy that was like, let's chop his head off because people with no heads can't talk trash. Do you remember that? And so he's back, and for sure, if Abishai was cast in a TV show, he would definitely be a part of Cobra Kai, because he's on no mercy train all day long, right? Just hardcore no mercy, right? He wants to kill him again, right? And, and, and here's the thing, he kind of, uh, Shimei kind of deserves getting killed, right? But David goes, whoa, 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 no mercy man. Today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of pardon. The king comes to the town to pardon. But interestingly enough, Shimei will both be an example of one who was pardoned today by the king. But in 1 Kings chapter 2, if you continue to read the story, he will also be an example of one who is judged by the king in the end. Pardoned here temporarily judged in first kings 2 unto death and so that leads me to believe that this confession is not entirely legit 
not entirely from the heart. And I have to wonder, and there's certainly the case that this takes place, but that there are people even today that their response to Jesus Christ as the king over all is a bit more of a, a, a hellfire insurance decision, right? Well, let me hedge my bets a little bit just in case this whole heaven and hell because Jesus reigns and rules as king and is the only Lord and God over all, just in case that's true. Yeah, I'll throw up my old hand and say I believe in Jesus and then kind of do my own thing, but there's, there's a category of person out there, isn't there? Someone who'd be quick maybe to jump on that train, and yet their submission, and I would put that in quotes, is really more out of self-interest than it is out of self-denial. That they're not actually abased by their sin, realizing they have nothing good to bring, and rather than kind of going, hey, how do I hedge my bets and keep a good position in all this, if indeed this is all true and the king does return, that's a problem in comparison to the self-denial that goes, man, I want to take up my cross and follow you. And you are worth following like that. It's hard to see from Shimei's confession, though, looking legit in its words. And if it's truly from the heart and spirit wrought, we're encouraged. But if it's not, when submission is really out of the sin of self-interest and not because you love and are loyal to the king, you can expect judgment in the end and not grace. Or I even think of the person who's just kind of dancing around the Jesus thing, right? And if the Lord returns, is going to be, no, 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 I, we're good. I, I do love you, and it's great. And at that moment, now C.S. Lewis is such a great quote about, at that day, it will be too late to decide which side you're on. He is king now. We serve him as that. Even when it's not favorable to you socially, or economically to be a Christian. He is king now, and so we serve him gladly and deny ourselves gladly and aren't looking for our own self-interest. And then we meet the second character, a little bit of a different scenario. We're going to have to go back a few chapters, but do you remember when Ziba threw Mephibosheth under the bus? Do you remember that whole situation? It was like, hey, just want you to know that Mephibosheth's not here because he's hoping that when Absalom takes over, he's going to get a whole bunch of power put back in his categories, right? Put back in his house. And so that's why he didn't show up. And so David meets Ziba. They're interacting. The question is, is that story that Ziba said about Mephibosheth accurate? And we're told, listen to this, before a word comes out of his mouth, we're told of Mephibosheth's appearance in verse 24, Okay. If there was ever a sign of someone's sincerity, despite the fact he hadn't followed David into exile, it says that he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until he came back in safety. He, he didn't show up and go out. He's going to explain why, right? David's going to ask him straight up, why, why didn't you come out? Why weren't you following me when I went out into exile? And he goes, listen, I got sold out by my servant. I told him to saddle that donkey, and I was going to meet you out there, but then he left me, and remember, I'm crippled, which is like the understatement of why you couldn't get out there. But if there was ever a sign of someone's sincerity, and that's often what we have, that's sometimes only what we have, to try to figure out, how, where do you stand with the Lord? How do I know where you are? Sometimes the only sign we have uh, of what's going on in the heart is what's happening out in your life, right? Like the James 2.18 thing, show me your faith by your works. It's not your works that save you, but if you don't have any works and affection for Christ coming out of it, you probably don't have a genuine faith. And so he's like, He's sharing the story, and the believability seems to be woven in the fact that he's basically saying, I wasn't with you in exile because my servant deceived me, but I was in spirit. Look at me. But then a test clarifies it. If an external sign could show seriousness of sincerity, you've got a test that clarifies it. As our faith is tested for its genuineness, Mephibosheth's faith is tested. How? David comes back halfway. Remember when he flips it, when Ziba comes, shares the whole story, he goes, all of it's now yours, right? The land, all of it that I gave him to Mephibosheth, it's all yours, and now I'm going to split it up 50-50. 
work through that. And here's, here's what's going on. He's figuring out where he really stands. You want his stuff? You want the king's stuff or do you want the king? That's what it is. And how does he respond? It's very Solomonic in its wisdom. You go to 1 Kings 3, they got the issue, the two ladies with the baby, right? And he's like, well, just cut the baby in half and give her half and her half. And the one with the axe, that was, that was her kid. She's like, she can have her. And then you find out what's true, right? It's like, well, you can have the land. He's like, good, I'm back in now. I got my portion. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes, I'm so glad he can have it. I'm just glad the king is on the throne. I'm just glad the king has returned. There's some sort of clarity that we get from these examples that testify to this being a genuine loyalty to the king. And I, I think of um, the woman with the alabaster flask in the New Testament with Jesus. Do you remember that? And they're all like up in arms and upset. And you can just, if you feel the emotion in the moment, they're, they're, they're missing it. And she has broken this flask that she probably spent all of her money on and she's pouring it on Jesus because Jesus is king. And there's something it says in the text and it's so good. It says, she did all that she could. And I feel like that is so fitting to Mephibosheth who loves the king, who's loyal to the king. And he's sitting there, he's like, I can't go, but I love the king. And so I'm going to sit there and I'm going to wait till he returns because nothing fires me up more than he would return. There is such a sweetness in that. I feel like that's the sign of this man's loyalty. He is my king. And what's interesting about the story of the alabaster flask and the anointing that goes on with Jesus is he says, whenever the gospel is preached, let this display of faith be proclaimed in the world. So it's awesome to think at the same time that the first character, it's like, I can't really know if this is genuine or not. At the same time, Jesus Christ will accept from us a simple faith that Jesus Christ is king. Isn't that awesome? And that some of us and all of us at, in, in, in some place or another are like, we're, we're trying to serve Jesus. We're trying to stay, take steps of faith. There's a number of different reasons why we are where, where we are and doing what we're doing. And maybe some of you are literally physically unable to do what you want to do. And so you've just become a prayer warrior. And listen, that simplicity, that doing all that you can, he's got it all. Jesus is king. I don't have much to give. It's true for all of us. And I think he displays that in a simple, limited, but loyalty to Jesus Christ as your king by faith. That simple faith is to be proclaimed in all the world because it's genuine. And I think we could learn from that. Then we see a third character. Barzillai meets David in verses 31 to 39. Barzillai, as you know, is the wealthy provider. He's taking care of David. He's been very good. He's the Old Testament example of Matthew 25, 35. When Jesus is talking about, you know, for I was hungry. Do you remember this? And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then it goes on to say that the reward for that tangible faith is what? Life with the king. And I think in the same way, going back to the Old Testament, you have this example of what does Barzillai do, but when the king was hungry, he fed him. When the king was thirsty, he gave him drink. When the king was a stranger in exile, he welcomed him. And now what does David do but invite him to be in the presence of the king? This is the invitation. Now, in this particular case, Barzillai rejects being welcomed in the presence of the king because he cites his age, that he's kind of on his way out. And for what he would be doing in the gate, he didn't sense that he would have the strength to be able to do that, but rather let him go die with his family. And yet I will say this, what is so interesting is that it's probably true that the most fruitful time in Barzillai's life la uh, existed in the very latter years of his life. That so often we think that our prime years are the best years of serving God. Our prime years are the ones where like if you, you know, that's where midlife crisis happened because by the time you're in midlife, you should have figured it out serving the Lord and had some serious fruit to show for it, right? 
okay, we don't really think like that. We're like, why haven't we made a ton of money or something like that, right? Or our life hasn't figured itself out. But here's the truth. Stay faithful. This is why retirement is such a scam of the enemy. Not that retirement can't be leveraged in a good way to the glory of God, and many of you are doing that. So I'm not against retirement like changing jobs or all that. Don't retire from serving the Lord. Your most fruitful years could be in your 70s. All right? Amen. Yes. Yes. Your decade is coming, y'all. Most of y'all look sharp, all right? And even if you're in your 70s, God bless you. And thank you for being here with us. So what do we see from him but a life of loyalty to the king, evidenced in being rich in good works. This is his faith, his loyalty in display. This is his generosity being known and will be rewarded. Why? Because you can't ever outgive the king. That's the thing. So that, that way that you serve the king, and of course with Jesus' example, it's like, how do we know that we've done that to you? And he says, when you go and do that to your brothers, Right? That which is truly life is the reward with the king for eternity, and that is true for here. The reward for those that live a loyal life to the king, evidenced in rich good works and generosity, will come through eternal life with King Jesus. And then back to the division. So now we get back in, and he kind of closes out the chapter, and the men of Israel are a little bit upset about everything. Why? Because he's coming in with Judah, and it's like, hey, we've got 10 shares. Judah's got one share. We're the majority of the people of God. Judah is the little guy, okay? And we were the first ones to talk about bringing David back. Why have you stolen him from us is the language, They're thinking there was some sort of incentive that they got something from David and they're like, whoa, 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 that is not what has taken place. But it is enough to create a division in the camp, in the return of the king. And what becomes clear is the return of the king has not united the people, hasn't. And as a result, the kingdom's stability is shaken but still standing. That's the good news. It's screaming that the kingdom is shaking. But in telling the story, it's reminding us even in a whisper that the kingdom is still standing despite divisions and continues to stand despite divisions. And that continues to be true for the church today. The kingdom will stand. The church will stand despite divisions. Do you believe the church has gone through some divisions over time? Do you know some of the most um, uh, impactful moments of revival in church history have been strangely, oddly, significantly divided? Like you think of the Reformation, and we're doing some work on the Reformation for a couple podcasts coming out, and the Reformation really has three major parties, all with significant differences, but we think of the Reformation as this massive revival in church history, right? And that was littered with Division. You think of, I was thinking 1 Corinthians 1 uh, 1 to 3, you're talking about uh, divisions within, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Christ, you know, the goody two-shoes ones. And uh, and so you've got all these divisions. You think celebrity pastors is a thing now? Man, that's been going on since the church started. And you think about Romans 16 and Titus 3, and it says, as for a man who stirs up division, have nothing to do with him. So clearly division has been a thing from the beginning. You think about what's happened in COVID and 2020 kind of era in the splitting of evangelicalism and drawing a whole bunch of different lines and the the church will continue forward. It will endure. You think about men of the past that you loved and trusted who've gone to be with the Lord and he'll raise up the next ones because it's Jesus church and it will continue on. On and on. I, I love the story. I'll give you another one. I, Voltaire. In the Enlightenment, it was going to crash over and just bring the end to Christianity. He said, in 100 years, the, the Bible will be nothing but a museum piece. He died, and his house became a Bible printing press and an outpost to send it all over the world. That's awesome. Okay? The church will continue on despite division. So don't be scared about division, and don't be like, oh, there's division in Doxa. Uh-huh, because you're here. And you're a sinner. And the enemy wants to destroy the unity that we have. 
So don't not expect it. Just know the kingdom's going to stand through it. So work it out. You got plenty of gospel grace. God help me lead by example in that. Amen? All right, second point. Don't worry, I only have two. <laughs> the kingdom is still standing amidst rebellion. The kingdom is still standing amidst rebellion. Again, nothing, nothing new here. It's kind of, you read chapter 20 and you feel like you're, it's on repeat, rebellion on repeat. But when you think about your life as a believer, it's kind of like rebellion on repeat, isn't it? You just go, again? And it, and it, and it you even struggle because you're like, God's, Jesus, that grace, I mean, I know the grace is big, but I, I just didn't really understand how much of a sinner I was then. And it's interesting, as you grow, you find yourself to be far greater sinner than you did when you asked Jesus for forgiveness. <laughs> That's the thing, right? You're like, oh, whew, glad that well is deep. Second Samuel 20 is really this, this, this ongoing story we've heard of rebellion, and it's a double rebellion. There's two characters, and there's two kinds of rebellion. There's Sheba and there's Joab. Two kinds of rebellion. Let's see if this maybe is a shoe that fits one of us. Sheba is the one who wants to jump ship on David and take people away from the kingdom. Starts on the inside, pulls people out. Joab wants to do things his way, and his rebellion will stay inside the kingdom. I'm serving the king, but I'm uncontrollable in that sense. I won't submit to the king while I serve the king. I'll do it my way. For sure, that's not a tendency here or in the church in general, but only back in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Wink. Okay, should we meet these characters? You've got Sheba, verse 1, who is a... Well, he's a worthless man. Speaking of on repeat, anyone here for 1 Samuel? Remember the worthless man phrase? Man of Belial, scoundrel. This is, a, this is a word that's come up again on repeat. Why is he a worthless man? Well, because he's creating this secessionist move away from King David and going his own way. And he's breaking covenant as a result. Like we see in 2 Samuel 3, there was a covenant expectation that you would follow the king and he's walking away from the king and he's drawing people away at the same time which if I'm not mistaken, sounds awfully familiar to Acts chapter 20 and seems akin to, though maybe not identical, of course, but akin to the wolves who, by the way, hang out in the church, who, by the way, if you want to tie in some other terminology that is used in the New Testament, like to hang out in sheep's clothing. And what do the wolves do in Acts chapter 20 that Paul is concerned about? They look to draw away the disciples after them. So it turns out, same idea, Different context, different setting, this has been going on and continues to go on. And so there's this desire, this pull to draw people away. But meanwhile, Judah is steadfastly following the Lord. And then David enters Jerusalem, and it's really awkward because his first move is a sad move. As the king entering Jerusalem, he goes to protect those concubines, right? And because of his own sin, he makes sure they're protected, but they're essentially left in widowhood for the rest of their lives. And it's heartbreaking. That's the first thing he has to address. And we see it in the text and go, whoa. And then boom, on to pursuing Sheba. Now that this has started, we got to go. And so he tells Amasa, I got three, got three days. Get the whole army ready to go. We're going to get out there. We're going to get ahead of Sheba before he gets people amassed to him and starts to follow him and starts to get this movement going. And so Amasa's given this responsibility, but of course he doesn't what? He doesn't get the job done in time, right? So then Abishai is then tasked by David to go and deal with it, even though the men are still called Joab's men. And by the time you get to verse 7 down to verse 10, now you've got Amasa who has met up with Abishai in the gang and Joab is there and Joab... Though holding his beard as if to kiss him, sound familiar? The right hand, so this is the left hand, the right hand 
Was the hand used in battle? If this hand was clutching a beard, there was no fear that anything was going to go down like went down. Obviously, the sword falls out of the pocket, and he takes it from his left hand and stabs him like that. That wasn't anticipated. But he stabbed him so bad that, what does it say? He doesn't need a second blow, does he? And he died. And it's almost so interesting. It's like in the run of play. It's like we read that and we move on, but that's kind of been... Joab's motto from the beginning, right? When someone stands in your way, just kill them. When someone stands in your way, exterminate them, get them out of there. And so now Amas is literally just dead and bleeding out on the ground, and they're still trying to gather this army to go pursue Sheba, and everyone's rubbernecking right at this dead body. So they're coming, they're coming and they're like, what, what the heck is that? Anyone? And they're realizing, oh, we're having problems gathering the army, so he, like, drags, I don't know, I imagine he drags his feet, you know, and, like, pulls a big daddy and drops a newspaper over him, you know, kind of thing, and just shoves them into the corner, and then they kind of gather the army together, you know, and so you see this kind of coming together so that they can start pursuing Sheba by verse 14, but again, we've seen this before, haven't we, with Joab? He did this with who? Absalom? He did this with Abner. This has been a pattern over time. What does he do? He serves the kingdom, but he does it on his own page. Is it possible that that's still going on today? Is it? I 100% sure. I'm 100% sure I think it's possible. And I would say that the terminology I would use for how it translates to today by application is a whole bunch of people in the Christian church are living a Burger King Christianity. Have it your way. 100%. It is a Burger King Christianity. I'll do kingdom work, but it'll be my way. I'll do Christianity, but it'll be my way. I'll be in the church, but I won't be submissive to elders. I'm on the church roll, but I operate in a rogue way. Even if you're innocent about it, you're like, ooh, rogue, that sounds aggressive, that's not me. No, your innocence to not even engage on that level is an evidence of that. You're doing church your way. You're operating the way you want to do things instead of the way the Lord has called you to do things. It could even be to this extreme that you have people, for example, that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 saying, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not, right? Do we not do many mighty works in your name and cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the spectrum is broad on doing things your way. But what I'm saying is there is a category from somewhere between foolish and disobedient to maybe evidence that you're not even a believer and that still exists today. Following in the footsteps of a Joab type mentality where you're still in the church, but you're not under the church. You're still on the roll, but you do it your way. And then you could compare it to Sheba's rebellion at the same time. What's going down here? Sheba's rebellion is he's drawing out people with him. You think that happens today? That's why you have elders. And you have good ones, which means we haven't had to come to you many times because we're dealing with it behind closed doors so it doesn't affect the church, but we're mindful of it and working with a lot of faithful men and women in the church to see that the doctrinal convictions of Scripture are upheld, and even that disgruntlements are worked through. Because I will say, probably the two most common ways that people end up squirming out of the church is that someone that is pushy in an aberrant doctrinal way or gossipy in a disgruntled way move people out of the church to follow them. Like, that's what happens. And you'll watch it, and you'll start to believe their story, and you'll buy into it, and you, you, you join the disgruntled train, and boom, you're out of here. And that is a tactic of the enemy. And so they understand this. They understand that Sheba is an example, and they've got to go pursue him because he's going to totally go pull a bunch of people away in their common what? In their common disgruntlement, Right? And so they're pursuing, and they're about to take him out, and they get to the city that he's likely in, and who would have thought that a wise woman would come out? We've seen this wise woman before, haven't we? Who's able to convince him, you're not going to come and take this whole city out. And I love what 
I love what Joab says here. Far be it from me, far be it that I would swallow up or destroy. That's why this person is hard in the church, right? Because there's delusion there. Or at least deception. And they go and she makes a deal and she says, listen, you don't have to kill this whole city. What if we work it out where I just kind of like Hail Mary the head over the walls. You guys grab it and head back. Would that work out? And he says, yes, to the wise woman. She works it out. The city is spared and Sheba's head is sent over the wall to the army. And then we get this outro where Joab is kind of in command leading David's army. And this forms the conclusion of chapters 13 to 20, this kind of heavy-hearted, immediate effects of the aftermath of David's sin, the sword having done its initial work as God promised as a result of David's sin. And again, the kingdom is still standing because it is held together by a promise, God's promise, but it's ultimately held together by a person, Jesus Christ. Right In the end, the promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The promise, God sends Jesus, who gives grace to sinners through faith in himself, in Jesus, offering us the opportunity and privilege to be a part of God's kingdom as Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom. The question is, who will be involved in that kingdom? But if you are a Christian, here's what you can be sure of. The same is true for you as is true of the kingdom and as is true of the church. If your faith is genuinely yours, gifted to you by God himself, then here's what we can know. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It's grace that's brought me safe thus far. And it's grace that'll lead me home. The hope of the kingdom and the church and your faith are the same. And so onward, Christian soldiers. Crowns and thrones may perish. Kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise. And that cannot fail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence we can have in it. Thank you for the surety of your promises, for the certainty of Christ's death and resurrection in the place of all who would confess to him, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, do that work that only you can do to take this word now and implant it deep in human hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.